nothing like certainty, right? I think, I think Genesis 5. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have made yourself known to us and help us, Lord, to appreciate the fact that we do know you and we do believe in you and we do have trust in you. Help us also to appreciate how radically different from the world that makes us. We are not just a little bit different. We are light and darkness. And so I pray for us as a church that we would faithfully hold to those things that you teach, that we would hold to them firmly, but we would hold to them lovingly, and that you would help all of us. These are positions that you embrace, that you demand we individually embrace and help us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Genesis 5 is is our beginning this morning, and it is good to have you hear this. I don't even know. I never know how to think about the Sunday before a holiday, so the Sunday before Thanksgiving, it is good to have you. It is good to have you here. We've turned our attention in our adult Sunday school class to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, And of course, Genesis has reference to the beginning and the the foundations of things. And we are not charting any new territory. In fact, we are just trying to make sure that we are recovering old territory. That is what Jesus did. We will look at it next week um, when the Pharisees wanted to have a conversation with him about divorce, a very contemporary issue. He took them back to the Garden of Eden, a very old place. I had mentioned last week that there are three different accounts of the creation of males and females um, in the book of Genesis. Uh, The first is Genesis 127. You don't need to turn to that. but So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And then there is the Genesis 2 account. Genesis 2.21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And we kind of turned our attention to both of those last week, and then Genesis 5 is the third of these. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Which, by the way, Genesis 5.2 is where we have the, 
I'm, I'm going to use the word tradition is probably not the best word, but where we have the tradition of a bride taking her husband's name. Um, <clears throat> they were called the man, the mankind, in the day that they were created. Verse number three, And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And so there is the third of those <clears throat> renditions, those, those accountings. And, and each of them then has its place in advancing the story and of reinforcing God's role. God created us. He created us male and female. From Genesis 1, we understand that we are created equally in our humanity. And from the Genesis 2 account, we understand that we are created differently in our function. We are created to do different tasks. Um, And in Genesis 5, although we could read about it in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, and I'll talk a little bit more about this week. I don't think that there are challenges, but there are definitely some, some gaps in our understanding of the way the timeline worked. I don't mean the time is inadequate. I'm just saying that <clears throat> we're not, there's, you know, we're told, for instance, and, and I want to spend a lot of time on this, but we're, we're told in Genesis 5.3 that Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness and called him Seth. And so we have, we don't really know much about the 130 years of Adam's life that went before that. <clears throat> but in this passage, in Genesis 5.1-3, through 3, right, we have all of those threads being brought together. Right? God made humanity in equality, male and female. And <clears throat> he gave them different functions, but together they were to go forth and multiply and populate the earth. And we have those threads brought together in Genesis 5, 1 through 3. That God made Adam, and that God made Adam and Eve, and that they were to go forth and populate the world. And here is the beginning of that account with the birth of Seth, a son in his likeness, after in his image, after his likeness, as God <clears throat> had created. <clears throat> in other words, folks, right? I'm trying to go somewhere specific with reference to this over the next couple of weeks. The creation of male and female was not just to have some variety, The creation of male and female was God's specific design for his will to be accomplished, which was to populate the earth with godly descendants. And in order to do that, he created us male <clears throat> and female. This is the foundation. Now, the, the, the text of the scriptures tie very clearly that core thought we will look at this a little bit more next week, to a conversation like, for instance, about divorce and remarriage. What I'm getting at is that in Genesis 19, when people came to him and asked Jesus about divorce, he said, well, let's go back to the garden. Nobody ever asked Jesus a question about homosexuality to our knowledge. But the Bible has much to say about homosexuality, all of it, All of it 
being tied back to the fact that we were made male and female for a purpose. Not just for decoration. But for a purpose. So, when we're, right, because we live in a world now that is absolutely positively determined. And we've seen this, right, in the last 10 years. We've seen this in the last 10 years. We're just like everybody else. All we want is to be allowed to be married. Now it is, we're allowed to be married, and if you think we shouldn't be married, you should be punished. So this is the world in which we live. And and how do we respond to that? What is our understanding of that? And then, that's what I said, as I mentioned, I want to talk specifically about that this morning. Next week we will go on and just talk about other things pertaining to heterosexual, because folks, all sexual relationships are fundamentally framed in the Garden of Eden. In other words, anything that might constitute a sexual sin is only a sexual sin if it violates what was created in the Garden of Eden. That, that God made a man and a woman, he wed them, and he gave them the mandate to, to have children. And anything that falls outside of that function, then God is going to put the label of it on it of sin. It's outside of that created function. So the creation of male and female is fundamental to any and all understanding of anything that God has to say about human sexuality and human sexual relationships or marriage, right? How many people does it take to make a marriage? And how many genders does it take to make a marriage? And who gets to decide when a marriage can end? These are all questions that when God wants to talk about them, he takes us back to the very beginning. What is the point of marriage? Because after all, it is entirely possible to populate the world without benefit of marriage. All of the animals do it. Animals have no marriage. There are some animals that perhaps mate for life, but there's no, there are no animal weddings. There are no animal covenants. And yet the animal world has continued to populate itself under God's direct control, but that is not acceptable for us. Why? It all goes back to the Garden of Eden and the purpose of our creation. <clears throat> But again, this morning, I want just, again, I'm not trying to tell you anything that you don't already know, but let's just, let's just go back and recover some of the basics. Obviously, from the biblical record, homosexuality is almost as mankind. And historically, it has not only simply been widely practiced, but it has been widely accepted. In fact, you could make the argument that it is primarily, if not exclusively, the introduction of Christianity that brings any kind of contradiction 
to homosexuality in virtually any culture. The Greeks practiced pederasty. This was a relationship that was not always sexual, but usually was sexual between an older man and a younger man, a younger boy, an adolescent, in which the older man schooled him in the ways of the world in exchange for sexual favors. Widely practiced, widely accepted, and it was carried over into Rome, and Gibbon, who is one of the considered the leading experts in Roman culture, said that the only emperor that he knew of that did not practice it was the emperor Claudius. So that it it extended all the way up to the upper echelons of Roman society. But this kind of mentality and relationship we, we can document existed in China, in Japan, in Korea, among various factions of Islam. One of the Spanish explorers said that it existed in Mexico, back in what we would have called the Middle Ages. So what we see happening in our country is is only something that unchristian peoples have been doing since the beginning of time. What we see in our country that perhaps makes it a little bit different is that increasingly people who identify as Christians are supportive of it. So historically, it has existed. And it has existed and been accepted. It has not existed in the closet And then the introduction of Christianity, or let me back up, because it was certainly not accepted in Jewish culture, which would not be Christian. But whatever covenant relationship there was with Jehovah, when that was introduced to a culture, homosexuality was prohibited, banned, outlawed. Now we're living in a world in which entire denominations like the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the American Baptists, um, the United Methodists, uh, have denominationally welcomed it and accepted it and tolerated it, all in the name of Christianity. And in fact, some of them have argued that it is the culture that has created the opposition. That it is not the scripture. And let me just give to you a couple of passages that are used to defend this. Acts chapter 10 and verse number 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Now, to me, that's a no-brainer, right? Because I would make the argument that no matter how you, how you define it or describe it, homosexuality is fundamentally wrong. So in other words, to say, well, God accepts people who work righteousness, right, that's not a problem. Homosexuality isn't righteous. It is unrighteous. Only, always, exclusively. 
that is the Bible position. That is not the position that many, again, professing Christianity now embrace. Probably the most difficult, not the most difficult passage from our standpoint, but one of the passages most often referred to. And, And so, right, with some apologies, folks, because this is just embarrassingly delicate. And yet, this is the kind of nonsense that we're up against. If you want to turn to it, 1 Samuel chapter 40. Good luck finding 1 Samuel chapter 40, by the way. Let's try 1 Samuel chapter 20. So here's kind of the logic of the world. Okay? And 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 the, the you know the, the world in general. I don't know if you know who Jordan Peterson is. I'm sure that some of you know who Jordan Peterson is. Jordan, if, for, for the sake of you who may not know, Jordan Peterson is a Canadian psychiatrist. He is brilliant. He is not a believer, but Jesus said of a man, you're not far from the kingdom, and Jordan Peterson appears to be not far from the kingdom. And he primarily interacts with men. And, and part of his thing is that Men need to grow up and become men, and he's got a, a he's very well received. He's very articulate. He's worth listening to. Anyway, I just I just am in the process of finishing up listening to his podcast, in which he is talking with Danielle Smith, who is I don't know what the what the proper definition is. She is the leader of the province of Alberta, and she is a conservative, and she is it's fascinating interviews. His Jordan Peterson's podcast is a fascinating interview, insight into Canadian politics and conservatism and things that are going on in Canada. And then she begins to talk about the the welcoming of the LGBTQ plus community into the conservative circles. And I just thought, well, you know, this is a problem. This this is this is just a problem. This is but this is the world that we inhabit. And I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, that if you watch television, it doesn't take much television watching of American television to come to the belief that, number one, there's a large percentage of the world's of American population that is homosexual. And number two, there's an even larger percentage of American population that loves it and embraces it and that number three, anybody who want, won't is some kind of homophobe. And <clears throat> so that's the climate that our children are being raised in. And then you add to that that you can find denominations and colleges and professing Christians who are arguing that it is an acceptable conduct if the relationship is proper. Right? That anything that the Bible says that would prohibit licentious, illicit sexual relationships is going to apply to those in the homosexual community. But if they are committed to each other in a monogamous relationship and even a marriage relationship, then that is totally acceptable. And part of the logic and reasoning on the part of the 
professing Christian community is the passage in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse number 21. This is, of course, when David and Jonathan are coming to grips with the fact that David is about to become a fugitive and his relationship with Jonathan is coming to an end. As soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times and they kissed one another and wept one with another until David exceeded. And the perverted reading of that is that this was an intimate relationship that ended up in sexual climax. Where would you find that in the text? Well, if that's what you're if that's what you're after, you can find anything in the text if that's what you're after. And so my point, folks, because I think it's the point that is being made of the scriptures. Right? When, when you look at homosexuality in the Bible, it is virtually exclusively defined in sexual relationship terms, never in relationship terms. The very word sodomy is a word to describe sexual activity, not human relationship. In other words, the world's going, look, if, if the relationship is right, if the man loves the man and is really committed to the man, then you ought to be able to accept that. But the biblical position is, it's not acceptable because men and men can't be together no matter how much commit, committed they have. The problem is not whether or not they're committed to each other or monogamous with each other. The problem is that they like men. And they weren't created to like men. They were created to like women, which, as we'll talk about next week, has its own set of problems, doesn't it? And girls were created to like guys, which has, of course, again, its entirely own set of problems to it. But the fundamental problem of homosexuality, folks, is is the fact that you have two people of the same gender trying to have a physical relationship with each other in which the only legitimate way to have a physical relationship is to have one member of each gender. There's no such thing, folks. And again, this is embarrassing and delicate, but there's no such thing as homosexual sex. There's only heterosexual sex that two homosexuals are trying to duplicate. In other words, somebody has to be the boy and somebody has to be the girl. Always. Always. Even if both parties are the same gender. And there is where the fundamental offense is, is right there. So it's not about whether or not they really love each other and are faithful and are practicing better Christianity than anybody else that might know. It is that very fact. All right, so let me just walk through some things then to to reinforce that argument, okay? Okay. The only basis for intimate physical relationship is if one party is a man and one party is a woman. Read the creation texts. Male and female created them, go multiply. Male and female created them, go multiply. Male and female, he created them. Look, here's Seth. After his image, 
in his likeness. And the fact that we have scientifically successful ways of giving a child to two men or to two women doesn't undercut the fact that the only way to have a child is to have the contribution of a man and a woman. Each of them brings something different physically into the production of another human being. By design. By design. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 13. So here's what the scriptures say, right? The world says, well, again, the world says you have to, you have to like it, you have to celebrate it, you no longer even have to tolerate it, you're not allowed to question it, right? And you guys, depending upon where you work and what the corporate environment is like, you might very well being find yourself being called into answer to HR for even suggesting that there might be something wrong with it. And this, by the way, folks, is because it is a religious issue and the church of the world practices its own form of severe church discipline. Participate or go. What do the scriptures say? Only men, only women, only married, period. And very early in the scriptural story, God identifies it as a particularly heinous sin that gets his attention and brings about his complete and utter devastating judgment. I will not read to you the entirety of the text. Genesis chapter 10, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13, verse number 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Something that would never be said about the Middle East today. That it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Now we will look at the other texts. But folks, to look at that part of the world and to see it as a desert is to be reminded on a regular basis why it exists as a desert and it's not climate change. Once upon a time, that part of the world was like the Garden of Eden. And then God destroyed it. Genesis chapter 18. And verse number 20. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now 
and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. Now that's, that's a very human position for God to take. It isn't that he didn't have the knowledge. It is that he is reassuring us that his knowledge is firsthand. I'm going to come down and take a look for myself. All right, here am I in the heavens, and the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah keeps rising up to heaven, and I'm going to go down and look around. And so he sends trusted representatives, angels. Genesis chapter 19 and verse number 23. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of those cities and that which grew upon the ground. So that what you have, folks, right? We want to make sure that we understand exactly what the historical record is. And the historical record is that hell rained down upon the earth. Fire and brimstone. That hell rained down upon the earth. The men of Sodom were exceedingly evil, says the Bible. And once upon a time, the land where they lived was like the Garden of Eden, says the Bible. And then God rained down hellfire, says the Bible. And he consumed every living thing. Every man, every woman, every child, every plant, every shrub, every bush. He completely and totally devastated it. And folks, that destruction then becomes the Bible benchmark for God's destruction. So that if anybody wants to question, really at any level, how God feels about sin in general and sinners who are unrepentant, God just always does this. And let's just, let's just take a little bit of time this morning and work through this. Isaiah chapter 1. We're about 1,200 years, approximately. 1,200 years after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah chapter 1, in verse number 9. Isaiah, of course, his sermons through Isaiah chapter 39 are pretty much all about the coming Babylonian destruction. Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 9, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. Right? So if, if the Lord hadn't left just a few of us, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah, because God didn't leave any of them. It, there, was no, there was nothing left when God got done with Sodom and Gomorrah. 
or Isaiah chapter 3. In verse number 9. Which could be said of much of the western world, including the United States. The show of their countenance doth witness against them. They declare their sin as Sodom and hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded themselves. They have rewarded evil unto themselves. Woe unto their soul. Or Isaiah 13 and verse number 19. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' excellency, excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 23. Now we fast forward another 140 years or so. And the Babylonians have come. Jeremiah 23 and verse number 14. I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers, that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. See, that becomes the benchmark. Let's talk of what, let's define evil human behavior. All right, let's talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. And let's talk about how God feels about evil behavior. Well, let's talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm just going to give you some other references. I'm going to have you turn a second to the New Testament. Jeremiah 49, 18, Jeremiah 50, and verse 40. The entirety of Ezekiel chapter 16. Amos chapter 4 and verse number 11. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Right now we're several thousand years beyond Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus here in Matthew 10 has commissioned the apostles with their message to go and preach it. And what happens if when you preach it, it will not be heard? Matthew 10, 15, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I just say, folks, right? Just, right? I mean, I'm not trying to insult you, but let's just remember a couple things. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, God is not given to hyperbole. He doesn't exaggerate something to try and get our attention that he doesn't mean. And then go back and read Genesis 19 of what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then ponder what it would be look like for Sodom and Gomorrah to be getting off easy. More tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. 
God's anger is a frightening, ferocious thing. And with reference to the point I'm trying to make this morning, folks, Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of those people for their heinous sin of homosexuality becomes the benchmark of biblical judgments. Matthew 11, look ahead to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I will give you a companion reference, Jude 1 7. <clears throat> Second Peter and Jude have such similar content, particularly in the judgment passages. Second Peter 2 I said Second Peter 1, but I'm sorry, Second Peter 2 6. Well, let's look at verse number five. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. So again, folks, my point, because it's the Bible point, is that Sodom and Gomorrah become the benchmark of God's destruction. Here is our world. It is tolerable. It is acceptable. It is wonderful. And there's something wrong with you if you will not celebrate it. And here is the Lord. Never forget what I did to them. Never forget what I did to them. There is a vivid example of the ferocity of my judgment. The benchmark. They are the example. They are are an admonition for all. We'll deal with this next week, Lord. Folks, right? They are the example for all that live ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah is not an isolated instance. It is a preview of the judgment that is to come that all humanity faces. Go back to the Old Testament. Again, we live in a world that is encouraging you to embrace it, to celebrate it, to tolerate it, to mitigate it. Right? It's really not that bad. They're just like us. They're just like us. They just want to work their jobs and have their marriages and raise their families and they're just like us. Except they're just not like us to God, folks. They're just not. And when God talks about it, He talks about it only in strong condemning language. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse number 22. What could be more clear? Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. 
It is abomination. It is abomination. I mean, just... Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now, if you're reading the context, right, folks? I want I just, again, I just can't emphasize this enough this morning because I'm not on a homophobic crusade as the world might define it. There are, there are, is the death penalty for heterosexual sin and it is condemned in equally uncertain terms. But when God talks about homosexuality, he just always condemns it. He judged it. He condemns it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23.18 Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore. Well, I mean, that's pretty easy, right? We, everybody can kind of understand that. Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow, for even both these are abomination unto the Lord thy God. And dog, folks, is one of the words that is used to describe a male prostitute. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about how much you paid for Fido. A dog is a male prostitute. And when the Bible uses that word metaphorically, there are lots of passages, right, in which the Bible uses a dog to mean just that, a canine. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so doth a fool to his folly. But when it's used as a passage like this, Paul will say to the Philippians, beware of dogs. He's not talking about canines. John will tell us with reference to the holy city, without our dogs. He's not talking about canines. There's not a sign outside the gate of heaven that says no pets allowed. And folks, there are few things in the ancient world that are more insulting than to call somebody a dog. Again, this runs completely counter, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to get on that bandwagon on that crusade, but in, in our world, and by the way, but I will get on the bandwagon to this point, this is, be very careful, folks, because this is part of the problem, the sinful, perverted problem of our world is the elevation of animals to near-human status. Read Romans 1. People worship and serve the creation more than the creator. Don't do that. Don't do that. A dog was an incredibly low form of life. And if you go to the Middle East to these days, folks, they are, they are still held in low regard. They're dogs. They're just dogs. 
in Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to give you, of course, the references because I want to make my final point and be done. Right? God condemned homosexuality by judging Sodom and Gomorrah. And that, even more than the flood, becomes the benchmark for God's judgment. And when God talks about it, he condemns it in the harshest possible language. And he calls it in Romans 1, 20-32, which is probably the most accurate description of American culture to be found anywhere in the world. Romans 1, 20-32. It is part of the judgment for rejecting him. So part of our thinking is understanding that God will judge it because he does, but our understanding needs to be expanded into understanding that it becomes part of the judgment itself. And that's that's a fascinating insight to the way God's judgments work. Because one aspect of them is raining down hell upon earth, fire and brimstone. But folks, Here's another form of judgment. And that is God goes, I'm just going to let you do whatever you want to do. Just go ahead. I'm going to let you do what you want to do. And so you look around and what are we doing? We're doing what we want to do. And what's the problem with doing what we want to do? (laughs) Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the problem. God only lets us do what we want to do for so long. And then comes the fire and the brimstone. But I would be remiss, folks, if I did not make this final point, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And that is that God is able and willing to save people out of it. That God is able and willing to save people out of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That's a word, that's actually a word that refers to the soft. I said, remember I said last week, God is looking for masculine men and feminine women. This is what is being referenced here. The soft. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That is a lengthy way of saying homosexuals. That's what it refers to. Abusers of themselves with mankind. Homosexuals. Now none of those people get in, folks. And you notice that God doesn't start with homosexuals. He ends the list there. He starts with fornicators. We'll get into that next week. Verse number 10, Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Verse number 11, But, right? And such were some of you. So out of that, out of that mass of perverted, corrupt humanity, God saved the Corinthians. That's what some of them were. So, right? We want to 
We want to look, a biblical understanding of this, folks, right, requires, I think, on the one hand, the recognition that this is a heinous sin that God uses as a benchmark, as an example of his ferocious judgment upon all ungodliness. That's what he says, right? This is what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why would you do it? I did it because of their wicked sexual practices. What's the takeaway? This is how God is going to deal with all ungodliness. But you know, folks, if all we do in fundamental circles is go on that tirade of how much God hates it, we might lose sight of the fact that God still does save some. And the blood of Christ can still save some. Now, it may be a, it may be a fraction of those who practice it who are saved, but it is possible for them to be saved. And then as the church, we need to bring that possibility into our thinking and ministry as well. So just denigrating them as being inferior to us, it may, they may interpret it that way, but we should never talk to it that way. All right, I'm going to stop there and happy to talk to you privately. We'll be back at 11 o'clock.